Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. I think every child that God brings to this planet is on a mission. And it's our job as parents to help them understand what that purpose is and to not get in the way of it with our own agenda on what we're trying to fulfill as being parents. It really is about launching people into their purposes. So I often say God didn't call us to raise perfect children. He called us to raise purposed children. That's Julie Lyles Carr, and she joins us today on Focus on the Family with your host, Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, you have six children. Uh, are they all alive? Of course they are. No, <laughs> no, not in the least, and I do not know why that is. It's because we all come into this world with a little bit of a God stamp on us, right? A little mm-hmm. bit of a temperament, and uh, not a, necessarily a temper. But we have uh, pre-positioned, predestined, uh, I think, personality bents. You know, extroversion, introversion, night person, morning person. I think these are things that are in our DNA when we get here. Um, I see that in my two boys. You know, there's such differences there. Study habits are very different. Just the way they relate to people is quite different. And uh, that's something that is God-given, I think. I'm amazed at the fact that this is a finite box that we play in. In other words, you can do Myers-Briggs or the DISC test, these personality profile tests, and there's four or five, maybe seven personality types that we all fit into to where researchers and scientists now can basically say we're unique, but we have a bent toward one kind of thing or another. And we're going to talk more about that today and how it applies to your original child. And we want to encourage you because every child, as you said, Jim, is unique. And um, our goal is not to force them into a box, but to understand uh, how God created them. And Julie Lyles Carr can help us do that. Uh, She's a popular speaker and very active in ministry. And she and her husband, Michael, have eight children, and I'm sure they're all alike. Uh, She's written an excellent (laughs) book called Raising an Original, Parenting Each Child According to Their Unique, God-Given Temperament. And uh, it's a joy to have her with us today. Julie, welcome. Thanks for having me. On behalf of all moms (laughs) with eight kids, are you sane or what's happening? I I mean, in terms of your own sanity, it's great. I love big families. Well, we love it. And John, I know you can attest to this. It doesn't feel like that many people to me until (laughs) I see us in a photograph. And then I think... Who was responsible for that decision? <laughs> Your Christmas photo, which yeah. I got a copy of, is so beautiful. <laughs> That's you. so nice. It's but, a tribe. <laughs> but it's interesting, with eight children, you you can test your theories here, because you probably have a couple that are alike, but by and large, they're all unique, but they have bents. Describe what I talked about in the opening there, that you have that extrovert, that introvert, that people person, the non-people person, the the dreamer, the uh, you know person that's into the analytics. Yes, 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 and yes. I mean, we've got all of it. And it never fails to amaze me that these kids that we have raised together in this home with the conversations and the meals and the family traditions, all of that can have such different ways in which they express their lives, different paths that the Lord leads them on, different interests, and different ways of just how they approach things. I think the thing that still is amazing to me, even 10 years later, is having had the experience of carrying twins and for them to be so completely different from each other. And was yeah. that your last pregnancy? That was the last one. So you one. had six and then you had twins. Went for around seven, got a bonus. Yeah. How did that, it, it, when the doctor said, listen, Michael and Julie, you're going to have twins, what was your initial reaction? Like, wow, that's great. Or, oh my goodness, what? 
I really thought we were halfway through the pregnancy. And my husband, who has never been able to look at a sonogram with any kind of acuity whatsoever, well, just I, like, well, is that a, what's the... What's that problem with right. that? I'd be in the all same the kids. Oh, exactly. And so all the kids were actually in there. All six kids were in there. We were with a, a friend of mine who had a, a sonography studio. And so she had this big screen up on the wall where you could see the baby. And, and they put that dot tone on there. And my husband went, is that two? And in my head, I thought, they are so messing with me, right? I would know. This is my how many is pregnant. If I had twins on board, I would know. And the kids started screaming and jumping. And finally, it dawned on me when my friend, the sonographer, said, let me see if that's a third. And that was the oh moment goodness. that I went, oh, I, I guess it would be unprofessional for a medical <laughs> professional to, like, try to punk you that you were having <laughs> twins if you weren't. And we were just sort of in shock. So I mean, that's we were how thrilled, it soaked but... in, in that reality Yeah, moment. it was, wow, I'm not on a reality show. I'm about to make my own reality show. It was kind of a difference there. You know what I love in your book? You talk about never truly being prepared to be a parent. And I love that because every one of you listening, if you're a new parent, here is great advice. You're not going to do it perfectly. Uh, it doesn't come with a manual. You can read all the books. Even if you do it well, your your kids have their own temperament and their own disposition and personality, and the formulas don't always work. Rarely do they work. Yeah, there's a lot of improv. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of improv. A lot I love of improv. That. You know, the, the borders of righteousness are firm. We know what those are and what the Lord expects of us in terms of raising our kids and to be, you know, valuable members of society and to love the Lord and, and to give back and to be contributors. We got that. But there's so much room in the field of grace for how that expresses itself. Mm. And so I think sometimes when we all try to come up with the same choreography and we try to implement that on every single kid we have kids that adopt it well that just seems to be a good fit for them and kids that don't and not only those that it doesn't really seem to fit it can almost make them a little resentful because we're not seeing them we're seeing first a template or we're seeing first a system and i think all of us have a deep desire to know that we have been seen for who we are not necessarily just the program. <laughs> that is so well said. And I think you look at teenagers today, they're yearning for that recognition that I'm here, I'm in front of you, mom, dad, mm-hmm. you know, can we, can we communicate? They don't always invite you into that conversation like that, but they're screaming it, aren't they? And I think a lot of times for kids who seem to be resistant in those teen years, I think there's a lot of saying, if you know who I really am, do you really yeah. love me and accept me? Or are you only willing to look at me through a filter of your own expectation? Wow. And for any of us in any relationship, if we think that people are coming to the table with a filter of expectation, we already feel a hesitancy to really reveal who we are. We have a real ethic in our house that hopefully we're seeing played out, but it's keep the conversation going. Whatever I have to do to do my Oscar face, oh, really? <laughs> Is that how you chose to handle that? Interesting. Yeah. Talk to me about that instead of the internal freak out, which may actually More be good how it advice, feels. actually. You know, but to just have that, hey, let's keep the conversation going, stay neutral. Tell me more. Talk to me about that. Why was that the decision you made? You mentioned the book, What the Purpose Is uh, and the Real Mission of Parenting. I think you're touching on it. But if, if we were to just ask that question, why? What is the purpose to parenting? What would you say? I just see all over the Word of God that when He makes people, 
he places them, and the book of Acts tells us this, that he places people in specific times and specific epics and specific places in geography for his purposes. When I look at the different accounts that we have throughout the word of God about people that he announced were on their way, whoever that was going to be, like a Gideon or a Samson or Jesus himself, he always predicated it with, this child is going to do this, and this is why I'm bringing this child into the world. There was a mission. There was a mission. I think every child that God brings to this planet is on a mission. Mm. And it's our job as parents to help them understand what that purpose is and to not get in the way of it with our own agenda on what we're trying to fulfill as being parents. It really is about launching people into their purposes. So I often say God didn't call us to raise perfect children. He called us to raise purposed children. And the difference between those two words is pretty significant when it comes to the ways in which you approach your parenting. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, you and Michael had your grand plan for getting married. (laughs) You know, so many young couples do. This is the way it's going to be. And, uh, you know, we're going to have 3.3 children or whatever number, in your case, eight. And uh, did your plans get disrupted? Did they come true the way you think they should have and would have? Or take us back to the early decade, the first decade of your marriage. What happened? We, oh, our plan was so beautiful. I bet it was. I mean, Jim and John, we should have had the thing laminated. It should have been framed. It was just so well laid out, and it had all these timelines. Professionally done. Oh, very, very (laughs) professionally done. Nice borders. It was awesome. (laughs) And so we had this big grand plan. I was in television and radio. Michael was going to go to law school and and get that first, you know, community citywide or maybe, you know, statewide congressional or political seat of some sort. And and at the 10-year mark, we would go to, I don't know, let's say Europe. And while we were in Europe, possibly in Italy or in Greece, we would conceive our first child. And it was all just very, it was <laughs> that, that so beautifully detail. laid out. Yeah, there was a lot of detail. There were, you know, housing requirements. Yeah. yeah, housing requirements that were going to be met, mm-hmm. a variety of things. And we had been married about seven months when we learned something that is profound for couples to learn, which is spontaneity can cause people. And so (laughs) 15 months into this new marriage with this beautiful 10-year plan, we had our first child, Madison. Yeah. And Michael in particular, I always loved kids and and enjoyed being around kids. And Mike, you know, really, uh, kids? mm, That came later. Yeah. Well, we talked him into it, right? Um, But he really was someone who had thought, I don't know if I'll ever have kids. And I knew this when we married. You know, I, I don't know if I'll ever have kids. If I do, it will be far down the line and maybe one. Maybe two, maybe. And over time, the Lord really worked on us because it was one of the questions we'd never bothered to ask God. We had asked him about what jobs to take and where we were supposed to live and things like that. But we'd never asked him, oh, yeah, and kids and family, like, got any thoughts? And, um, and apparently the <laughs> Lord a good did. question. And so we, when we opened up that question, we discovered that God had really softened our hearts for the experience of a bigger family. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Oh, hey, Mike. Got here as soon as I could. What's going on, man? Hey, I just wanted to give you an update on my marriage. Is it good news? Yeah. Our marriage is going great right now. I couldn't be happier. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. It's like a solid 5 out of 10. (laughs) Having a marriage that's just okay isn't where couples really want to live. Give yourself and your spouse an all-inclusive weekend where you'll slow your pace and focus on each other. Get more details at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash getaway. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash getaway. 
In light of the Supreme Court's recent decision on abortion, are you ready for what comes next? And how should we respond as emotions run high? As Christians, we need to be ready. Focus on the Family can help you prepare. Join us every Monday to hear inspiring stories from people who faced their own pro-life moments and experienced God's love. To learn more, go to FocusOnTheFamily.com slash SeizureMoment. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash SeizureMoment. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Julie, here's the question. Why do we try so hard to be normal as opposed to identifying that originality that God has created? I mean, he's a creator of life, and he gave us a bouquet, not a single flower. Um, Why do we lean toward normal and find comfort in normal rather than Let's raise these kids as originals, all eight in your case. I think for a lot of us, some of our greatest hopes and fears have to do with our kids. And if we can find something that we think is going to be guaranteed, then it seems to take some of that fear off. It quells that. I think we all love things that feel like formulas and guarantees and and certain ways that we think will work. And it's always fascinating to me when people ask me about the expression of raising our kids. Well, tell me exactly. Well, give me the list. And I'm like, bro, we need to talk about your kids because what's worked for some of mine may not work for some of yours. We have a funny story that we tell. One of my children, my second child, McKenna, she really likes things to be platted out well. She likes to know what's coming up, what she can expect. And she has a real heart to be compliant and to be on track. She really likes knowing what the parameters are. Meet the expectations. Correct. She really likes that. So when the oldest kids were young, I was looking for efficiency models. And so I had this chart. Well, if you do this, this is the punitive consequence. So if you do that, it's going to be this much time out. And if you do this, then it's going to be, I'm going to get to take that stuffed animal. And if you do this, and I laid it all out. McKenna looked at that chart and you could see her little mind going, okay, excellent. Okay. (laughs) Never going to do any of that stuff. (laughs) Third child justice walked up to the list and went, totally worth it. Going to do all of it. (laughs) Fantastic. These consequences aren't severe. Not not big deal. I'm willing to pay the price. So I think that some of it is trying to make efficiency models. I think some of it is we want those guarantees. But I tell you the thing that I find over and over. We, to some degree, find a lot of our identity in our parenting. Oh, yeah. And if we have a kid go rogue or we have a kid who does something the way that we didn't like or we have a kid, I don't know, speaking hypothetically for a friend whose child always shows up to Sunday school with two different shoes on and the nastiest shirt you've ever seen, that would be one of mine. (laughs) You know, how are people going to judge me? What are they going to think about me? And what does it say about me? So I think some of it is out of a, a desire to really do things that are beneficial and good for our kids. But some of it really is to protect ourselves sometimes because we really don't want people to judge us. But Julie, how do we untangle ourselves from that? First, how do we recognize it? And then B, what, what is the other way? And is that sufficient to ensure that our kids have the best shot at doing well in life? Because I think it's all kind of wrapped up in their success and how we measure them by their grades, by, you know, what co- we all talk about what college our kids are going to, don't we? I mean, that's usually it. But not all kids are cut out for college. Right. There's vocational pathways. There's other things that they can do to earn a living. But we do tend to freak out and panic. So speak to that mom specifically who is in that mold of, you know, I'm watching all these things. Uh, how does she relax and where does she find her security and her comfort even if her kids aren't doing what she wants them to do? 
one of the questions that I ask myself if I start bumping up against something where I'm like, ooh, I don't know that I want them wearing or doing or saying or what did they just post on social media with my last name on it? You know, those kind of things. I ask myself this question, who is the they I'm worried about? You know, we have this sort of societal mythological they, and that they tells us things like you can't wear white pants after Labor Day, and that they has certain expectations about when your Christmas tree can go up and when your Christmas tree can come down, and that they actually governs a lot of some of the, you know, little different cattle shoots that we try to put our kids in and we think they're supposed to work through. Sometimes it's a they that is sort of the they, the church broadly. Well, what will the church think? And if I'm trying to raise godly kids, what will they say if they see this? And does that match their definition Mm. of godly kids? And sometimes it's the they that's within just our own extended family and community. Oh my goodness, if my mother realizes that I've let them do blah, 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 or if they get wind that so-and-so is going to go to community college first, you know, what, (laughs) what is my father-in-law going to say? We've got this they that we worry about. When I identify that they, it helps me identify, well, is that God's guidance and voice? Or is that me seeking approval or trying to buffer against some kind of judgment? So I think when mom hits that place that she's freaking out a little bit, who is the they? Identify that. Identify it. And if it's really someone that is important and is a mentor, is someone who disciples you, Okay, that's an important they to listen to. But if it's a they who's always critical or it's an extended family member who always has an opinion that's different than what God is guiding you to do for your child, that they just has to get quiet and you need to not allow your emotion to spool when that they can be shouting very loudly. I think it's really important for all of us to take a strong look at how God is asking us to raise each individual kid. And I don't think we often stop to ask that. Yeah, it's so true. Let me ask you this. When God sees us, you know, mom and dad and the kids, in your case, the eight kids that he's given you, what is he looking for? I think he's looking for a celebration of what he's created. I, you know, Genesis tells us that God creates and he stands back and he, and he says, this is good stuff. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. And so I think he's looking for people to partner with him in parenting who equip themselves to celebrate his good purpose and what he has designed. You know, I've got kids that are quirky. I've got kids who behave in funny ways. I've got kids who, you know, my 16-year-old who goes to the grocery store without shoes. I know, I know. But I celebrate that now in a way that was hard for me to celebrate initially when I thought there should have been, you know, stronger rules or what are people going to think. How did you get there, though? I got to ask you because, I mean, has he ever looked at the bottom of his feet when he got home? <laughs> you got it's, it's what you pay attention to, right? But, but, but I mean, it's true, though. What, uh, and I'm just thinking of particularly, again, moms, but dads, too, that are so wrapped up in how could you ever do that? I have used those words, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and I would love to be more celebratory <laughs> with the boys <laughs> their uniquenesses. But how do you move from point A to point B uh, to where you can relax and you're prioritizing appropriately and concentrating on the right thing so you're not really doing damage? You know, I think for me, part of it, and and when people ask about the size of our family in terms of, well, what's the testimony on that? You know, that that means God thinks you're amazing parents. I'm like, maybe it just How many did you adopt? (laughs) (laughs) They always get asked that too. Um, 
But, you know, I think part of it may just be that God's like, I finally got through to her after eight. <laughs> she finally <laughs> figured it out. I think part of it organically came about for me because, honestly, when you're raising this number of kids, there are certain things you just learn organically are not that important. Okay, so a kid went to the ballet and he was wearing nasty sneakers. Nobody died. It's okay. Yeah. And so I think some of those things just in basic survival of did we have everybody in the car and is everybody at least somewhat <laughs> covered? Fine. We're good. It's a victory. I think that really resetting what my expectations were mm. for what children can do, who they can be, and then just through the process of seeing when you celebrate someone and you honor them, Compliance and those times that you need to say, hey, I'm just asking just for this family wedding, would you please take the blue out of your hair? You know, it, when, you, <laughs> when you really reduce down where it's not every day you're hammering them about something else that doesn't meet your preference. I mean, here's the reality. I decorate my home based on a preference I have. How would I feel if I had somebody coming into my world and saying you must decorate in this certain way when really at the end of the day, it's a non sequitur. That's become one of the questions I've tried to focus on as well is what is a non sequitur? What really in the grand scope of things does not matter mm. in comparison to the health and the joy of this kid's soul? If that kid wants to wear weird nail polish or wants to wear a ripped whatever, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter because they're a great grand person with compassion. Let's just celebrate that. And I love that. And let's get into that personality type, which is what your book is based on. Kind of the DISC test of old, right. but you've applied it in a different way and given the DISC acronym different names. But I love it. It's a way for us to understand God's hand in our development and how we think. And again, these are broad concepts. Uh, you're probably a mix of all of them or three of them or whatever the, the way that you see yourself. But let's go through the DISC acronym and describe it for us, the D of DISC. What does that represent? I changed the word just a little bit because I felt that some of the technical terms that are used in the traditional DISC, and there are actually even some that preceded that that were even a little more strong. I wanted these terms to feel victorious and like a win. I, I didn't want it to be, oh, that's the bossy one, or, you know, oh, yeah. that's the shy one. You know, I wanted it to feel like right. from a place All of empowerment. Positive. Very much so. So with the D, I've, I've called that the director. And, and this is <laughs> like the kid, that. you know, that you just see on the playground who just seems to organically be able to get everybody in line, and we're going to do a play here on the playground, and I'm going to do this, and you're going to do this, this, and this. And people go, Oh, okay. Like, it's, <laughs> right. like, it's just Fall that vibe. Yeah, right. just that vibe. They're leaders. They're leaders. They are leaders. Now, I, I believe everybody is a leader. Right. Everybody's leading somebody. But these are the ones who tend to lead the biggest groups in an organized way and in a way that is very, very task-specific. That's a really important designation between the next one I'm going to talk about, which is the I, and I call that one the inspirer. Now, the inspirer can get everybody together on the playground, but it's for audience, because they're going to do a comedy bit. <laughs> so <laughs> right, it's a little okay. bit different. And theirs is much more about those relationships and having fun and being spontaneous and engaging everybody in that sense of fun. And so that's the difference between those two styles of leadership, if you will. They're both very attractional. People tend to flock around. But for the director, it's task. And for the inspire, it's more people, relational. relationship. Yeah, Correct. And then I have what I call the S, the steadfast. And this is the person who also is very relational, like the influencer. But the steadfast doesn't need 274 friends at a sitting. They're great with just a smaller group that they really invest in. 
What's also interesting with the steadfast is as much as the inspire doesn't really care if things are different and new and there's no routine, the steadfast really likes for things to be fairly platted out. They like to know what's coming. They are an amazing person to come alongside, a great second, if you will. I kind of don't like that term. It's a little but a weighted. Wonderful but friend, a good wonderful friend. They're the one. Yes. All that. All of that. So I love the steadfasts in my life because I just think they help make the world go round. And then we have what I call the curator. And the curator, that's the person who labels their label maker. Like they really love spreadsheets. They really love knowing the data and they don't really need people in general. There's something of a lone wolf. Like, you know what? I got this. You guys are great. Let me go do my thing. We need curators in the world. They're really important to have. And I think that they lead in a way that is sort of different, obviously, than a D or an I or an S, but they lead in a way by saying, let's set a standard. And when you're someone who sets a standard, you are leading. And so I also find that the curators in my world are more task-oriented. So we've got the director and the curator who are more task-oriented. The director wants people to organize. (laughs) The curator wants stuff to organize. The I, the influencer, and the S, the steadfast, are more relational. The influencer likes, and inspirer is another way of saying it, also really likes to have lots of people around. The steadfast really doesn't Mm. need as many, but also likes that relational aspect. And goes deep. Those are great generalities to understand the bent of your child and then help parent in that direction, mm-hmm. right? So you don't try to take a director and make them into, you know, an influencer or something like that. Know their bent and then help them in that way. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. Now, the other corollary is neither do you want to take a snapshot of a child at a certain stage of development and say, you're a director, 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 director. When ultimately that child may say, you know, actually, I feel like I'm a bit more of an inspirer. I kind of like more of that influential role in a positive and comedic way. So to make sure that we leave enough room, this is not something we're stamping on them. Mm -hmm. It's a way of understanding who they are in this season. We do have bents that come very naturally, but we see some things rise and crest and then maybe dip a bit, depending on what season of life we're in, what kind of experiences we're having, and the various roles that God can call us to in certain Mm. seasons. I love that attitude of a parent to be in that direction, to get to know your child and to find out their likes and dislikes. Really know them well, know their hearts. Julie, this has been so much fun. We're going to have to have you back and talk more about this. Um, In the book, Raising an Original you do have the the, the assessment uh, mm-hmm. for the child. And so when you pick up the book, you can uh, use that with your own kids to kind of identify where they're at. I think that's terrific. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those resources that will help you in your parenting. I so appreciate your attitude, having eight children, just that ability to know what are the important things and what are the unimportant things, right? Yes. Gotta have it. Gotta have it. Gotta have it. (laughs) Well, one of the things with eight children, you're forced to efficiency. You can't really worry about the things that aren't important. Right. You got to move on. And that has come through loud and clear. And even for the mom that has one child and the mom and dad, that you know, uh, for both of you, if you're in that spot where you're panicking a bit, this is an excellent resource for you. And uh, one of the things that we have as well is the seven traits of effective parenting assessment that's on the Focus website uh, to help you identify your strengths and your weaknesses when it comes to the parenting side of this. So I'd encourage you to take that. Uh, It's free. And uh, there's also resources there that will augment uh, those um, maybe not as strong areas. Right, John? Yeah, Jim, that's absolutely right. Uh, I've taken the assessment. It does shine a light on your strengths and uh, it does give you some ideas on how to grow as well. And I hope you're inspired to do that. Uh, Take the assessment when you're at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And by the way, uh, as you can, please donate to the Ministry of Focus on the Family. 
and request a copy of Julie's book, Raising an Original, Parenting Each Child According to Their Unique God-Given Temperament. And once again, our phone number, 800, the letter A, and the word family. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ. Listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break here and then return with another faith building program for your family. Stay tuned. Clubhouse is really edifying in every part of it. A resource that supports your values. We subscribe to other magazines, and every once in a while there will be a story that questions a parent's authority or kids behave in a way that I don't like, and we never have that problem with Clubhouse. I can trust it. Learn more about Focus on the Family Clubhouse and Focus on the Family Clubhouse Junior Magazines at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash clubradio. We tend to marry outside of our birth order, and that's a good thing because simply marrying outside of your birth order increases the probability of success in marriage. You're going to hear more from Dr. Kevin Lehman today on Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. Every time Dr. Lehman's with us, he knocks it out of the park. Uh, His sense of humor, his stories, his practical applications uh, all make for a great conversation. He's known as the birth order guy, and he has some uh, strong insights on how the order in which you were born affects your personality. His groundbreaking book, The Birth Order Book, Uh, really helps you better understand yourself and how birth order plays a role in who you are. Today, we're coming back to a program with Dr. Kevin Lehman about improving your marriage relationship by knowing more about your birth order and your spouse's birth order. Uh, This was really fun and eye-opening. It was, and on previous programs, as we've talked with Dr. Lehman about birth order and how it influences us as individuals and as parents, this was the first time we talked with him, though, about how that birth order affects the marriage relationship. And Dr. Lehman is an internationally known psychologist, radio and television personality, educator, speaker. Uh, He's written over 50 books on parenting, marriage, and family living. And we're going to pick up the conversation as he describes how he developed an interest in this concept of the birth order. I was sitting in a college classroom, and my professor uh, was talking about the firstborn child. And he described the firstborn as organized, doesn't like surprises, reliable, conscientious, a list maker, an achiever. There's a right way to do things. I said, oh, my goodness, he just described my sister. And then he went to the middle child. Opposite from the firstborn. Yeah, check. Uh, Hard to pin down. Plays off of what's ever above him in the family. A mediator, a negotiator. Huge with loyalty and friendships. Hmm. And I thought, oh, my goodness, he just described my brother. And yet my brother was an A student like my older sister, okay? So he was the firstborn male, let me point that out, as well as the middle child. So both attributes. Yes. And then he went to the baby, and that was the clincher for me. (laughs) Attention-getting, 
uh, fun, loving, never met a stranger, could sell dead rats for a living. Uh, well, listen, one of my claims to fame is I talked my way into Disney World. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> now, check this out. Not one ticket, not two, but nine. Don't tell Disney World. I, I won't. I would, let's keep this a secret. But I'll tell you, you. Okay. Have you ever but, paid them back for that? <laughs> a lot of publicity right there in the mention. <laughs> well, <laughs> really. I mean, uh, babies have the skill to sell dead rats for a living. In the business world, your CEOs are your presidents, your accountants, your engineers, are your firstborn children. Anything where technology pays off huge, you're most likely to find the firstborn. Your entrepreneurs in the business world... Donald Trump, uh, Steve Forbes, Bill Gates Jr. I mean, I know he's a college dropout, but the guy did pretty good. He's a middle child. So middle children tend to roll differently than the rest of the flock. Babies, charming, could sell dead rats for a living, like I said, uh, got away with murder, most likely to retain their pet name. Her name might be Mary Lou, but everybody still calls her Buffy, you know. Uh, So it's interesting to me how all these cubs come out of the same den and yet they're all unique. Now, today, we're having smaller families. So we have a lot of only children who are step-cousins, so to speak, to the firstborns. They're everything we said the firstborns are, only put the word super in front of it. Uh, super conscientious, super reliable, mm-hmm. super, you know, they're little adults by age seven. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of families, like we, we have five kids, but we've got an only child in that five. Well, how do you do that? Well, there's variables that affect birth order. Well, Big gauge gaps, for example, set that right. up. Let me ask you this question, that, that 80-20 rule. Do you find that um, – because some people will say, well, that's not me. I'm firstborn, but I act like a lastborn. Is, does that happen, and how frequent is that? It happens all the time. And the variables of birth order, you really have to understand the variables or you won't grasp what we're talking about today. The variables are sex, number one. You have five kids in the family. One of them is a male. There's something special about one child in the family. So that kid could be in the second, third, fourth, or even fifth position and still have firstborn-like qualities. Because of his his or her gender. Because of their gender. Okay. Then you have age gaps. A five-year age gap between same-sex kids, you would draw another line in a family. So that's where it splits off. Okay. Well, let let me ask you about that. So there's five kids in my family. I'm the fifth born, the last born, Uh but I'm six years from my closest sister. Right. They're all one year apart. Yeah. So what category would that be? You're a firstborn son. Are okay. you the president of Focus on the Family, or, or did I not hear John Fuller right? Are you the boss? Okay, yeah. Are you the boss? Uh, well. Bo- are you the boss? Answer the I've question. Got the You're title. I've got the title. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, you see Jane's, what I'm saying? Gene's the boss. But do you see what I'm saying? That yeah. gap sets those things up. Our youngest, little Lauren, is very creative uh, and very detailed-oriented, and she's the baby of the family, but she's a functional only child. So, again, only children do logarithms in their head at age seven. I mean, they're advanced from the rest of us. But I would think, especially, you know, in my case, I would say I'm average in those kind of discipline categories, but I'm more extroverted. I like uh, people. But that's the influence of those sisters above you. Okay. We're always affected by what's above us in the family, not what's beneath us. Well, let me say publicly, thank you, Kim and Dee, for that influence. <laughs> well, and here, here's the other thing. Twins. Yeah. Twins break up the birth order. If you want to pray for a kid, special prayer, pray for the kid that follows the twins. <laughs> because the twins, whether they're fraternal or identical, get an awful lot of attention. Hmm. So 
people who say, I, I get letters from people, oh, this is non-biblical. I said, well, yeah, okay, Tom. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cain and Abel. Uh, the, the original title on the birth order book when it went to Ravel Publishers with rubber bands and cardboard was Abel Had It Coming. <laughs> and the publisher said, Kevin, you cannot have a title like that. I said, I like it. It's got a nice family flavor. How about Jacob and Esau and a bowl mm-hmm. of porridge? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things where brothers or sisters are diametrically different personalities. Well, that gives us uh, kind of a good background. Let's dial it up now when those uh, firstborns, middleborns, and lastborns get older and now they're going to marry somebody. We often talk about how opposites attract. I think in our marriage counseling here, um, similar to what you experienced, Kevin, you see that that 80-20 rule usually applies. About 80% of us are attracted to people who are different from us. Talk about that magnetism and talk about how birth order plays into that attraction. Well, let's start with if both of us were the same, there'd be little use for one of us. (laughs) Okay. Well, some opposites may have that thought. Yeah. But opposites do attract. I mean, as a baby of the family, I can tell you, I married Mrs. Uppington. And where is she? Mrs. Uppington, of course, is my pet name for my firstborn wife who loves restaurants with four and five forks. There's a right way to do things. She was color coordinated at birth, I believe. But, you know, I can still remember as a young husband-to-be standing at that aisle, as she walked down the flower-strewn aisle, we spent $29 for flowers on our wedding. It was a big affair. And I remember looking at her little daisy she had. To this day, she hates daisies. But I didn't realize that underneath that bouquet was a rule book. Mm. And firstborns tend to be the rule makers. Mm -hmm. Firstborns are good at spotting flaws. That's why they're good engineers and good accountants, astronauts in outer space. Of the first 23, 21 firstborns, two only children, not a middle or a baby in sight. Mm -hmm. So here I am, baby of the family. Now, I knew nothing about birth order at that point, very, very little. But I didn't realize that what happens in marriage is that when two people marry, it's not two. It's at least six. How do you get that man? Because you marry your in-laws, and you either reap the benefit of what happened in that family, mm-hmm. or you pay for it. Mm-hmm. So it's not only your bride or your groom's birth order, but what kind of family did they come out of? Was there a critical-eyed parent there? Now, we talked about age gaps, gender. We didn't mention physical handicaps or mental handicaps, but that's part of the variables. But put a critical eye and that means a person who can spot a flaw at 50 paces in the marriage, and you got trouble Mm. because they're going to be a flaw picker. That person isn't going to feel like they're loved. Women in particular who thrive on affection need to know that their husband has their back at every moment of their life, okay? And many of us as men who aren't great wordsmiths but we're great critics can take the spirit of a woman and just level it with just a word or a look. That's so, a majority of the relational component, isn't it? It when is. You describe that. That's I mean, most marriage. I wrote a book called Smart Women Know When to Say No. In a contrast, the controlling male and the pleasing female. Mm. It's a very neurotic relationship. And like a moth to a flame, these people find each other out. So there's opposites that attract. 
that aren't good, healthy marriages because one person does all the controlling and the other is beaten over the head like a baby seal. Let me ask you this. Some people are listening, thinking, okay, this sounds good. This sounds psychological, and I get it. Where is God in this whole thing? Why did he design us like this? There's only so many emotions that we can feel. There's only so many attributes that we have. There's only so many positions in birth order that you can be. And he puts that all together, and then you're attracted to your spouse, and yet in most marriages, you have to learn to be selfless. Is it fair to say that if you put Christ at the center of your relationship, he can um, smooth out some of those rough edges? Well, that's what you hear all over the Christian kingdom. It just put Christ at the center of your life. The problem is, if you've married a woman who came out of a very dysfunctional family, who didn't have a loving father, number one, she's got all kinds of issues with God. Because so she's going to take a lot of sandpaper. She doesn't even <laughs> see God as the loving father. Mm. She sees him as the critical eyed person. She runs on guilt. Now, I know I'm stepping on some toes when I say these words, believe me. But we tend to, in the kingdom of God, come up with these little platitudes. And so, yes, you want to rely on God for all things. If anything is going to overcome this great dysfunction in a family, it's the love of Jesus Christ in one's life. What I've learned is it takes people sometimes decades to get to that point where they really understand that the sin I'm going to commit next week, you know what, Jim and John? It's already forgiven. Mm. See, God, Jesus came to this earth to put an end to religion, to put an end to religion, not start a religion. You know, it's all about a relationship. So, yeah, I mean, I can tell you, I don't know how people make it without God and marriage, if that's the question. I know people do, but I don't know how they do it. Mm. Uh, because there's times when you're you have this intimate union with this person where you'd want to either UPS them to a far-off land or, <laughs> or kill them. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Oh, hey, Mike. Got here as soon as I could. What's going on, man? Hey, I just wanted to give you an update on my marriage. Is it good news? Yeah. Our marriage is going great right now. I couldn't be happier. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. It's like a solid 5 out of 10. <laughs> Having a marriage that's just okay isn't where couples really want to live. Give yourself and your spouse an all-inclusive weekend where you'll slow your pace and focus on each other. Get more details at FocusOnTheFamily.com getaway. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com getaway. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Hey, Kevin, let's get practical. Let's talk about those combinations and put some meat on the bones of what we've talked about. Talk about two firstborns who marry. Hmm. Um, is that typical? What percentage of the population would that represent? Not typical. Okay. We tend to, uh, now I'm speaking in generalities, we tend to marry outside of our birth order. And that's a good thing because simply... Marrying outside of your birth order increases the probability of success in marriage. So opposites attract really does Oh, they apply. do, yeah. Now, when you have firstborns and firstborns together, they spend a lifetime, it seems like, shooting on each other. <laughs> you should do this, you should do that. They're the great improvers, okay? They see something that's out of place, and they immediately go over and straighten it up. So what are some tools that you would recommend that they could uh, do it better? Well, the division of labor is really important. I'm going to take care of this, and you take care of that. 
Now, we'll report back and, and trade notes. I always tell women at my seminars, where, is, where are the firstborn women? And I see all these hands go up. I said, I've got a great suggestion for you. Have a wallpaper party. And just invite your firstborn girlfriends to help you wallpaper a room. And here's my prediction. By 11 o'clock in the morning, you'll have blood on the floor. <laughs> Why? Because you have all these people who know exactly how life ought to be. So you're a firstborn, and you're talking to your firstborn wife. Okay? Now, lots of times you might just say, all right, listen, this is what we're going to do. Bingo. The hairs go up. I mean, the ears are back. Hey, honey, um, I'd like to ask your opinion about something that I've really been struggling with. Now, the ears are open. The heart's open. You're on the right track. So when you say, put some meat on the bone here for us, those are the kinds of things you learn to say to your bride or to your groom. Well, there's so many combinations, Kevin, and we can't cover them all, but uh, let's go through a couple of more. Let's yes. talk about firstborn and middleborn. Pretty good match. Why? Because middle children never had their way at anything. No one ever said to a middle child, honey, what do you think we should do? They were submerged by the firstborn, little Miss Bossy, little Miss Goody Two Shoes, or Mr. Great Student in School, and little Schnooky, the baby of the family that got away with murder. <laughs> so middle children are a little bit like going down to the blood bank and finding a universal donor because they go with about everything. Uh, a middle child is a good match for a baby. A middle child uh, is a good match, a great match for either an only or a firstborn. They add balance in a very natural way. They never had mom and dad of themselves. They negotiated for everything they ever had in life. So, and they're comfortable with it. So that. that's a good skill to bring into marriage. So hooray for the middle children. They're the ones that keep peace. Right. They're the peacemakers. They are. Let's talk about the other combo, the oldest and the youngest. Well, that's a naturally good uh, combination. It really is. A firstborn and baby uh, and only born and baby are very good. I remember coming home from CBS television in New York, and I said to Mrs. Uppington, I said, uh, hey, you never said if you, you liked my spot or not. And she said, oh, you were good. <laughs> that communicates a message. Oh, yeah. That, that's what you call a spit in your soup, by the way. Oh, you were good. So that just sets me up to say, all right, what's the problem? And she's, this is a cool, this is so embarrassing to say. She says, did you have to blow your nose in your tie? Really? <laughs> oh, my goodness. She says, people read your books. They look up to you. You're a respected psychologist. And there you are blowing your nose in front of Harry Smith at CBS. I said, well, honey, and I explained to her, I said, the floor director was giving us the rap, okay? I know Harry did not see that signal. And so Harry went to ask a question. In fact, we were talking about birth order that day. He said, Dr. Lima, we never got to your birth order. What's your birth order? Well, the guy's counting down with fingers, you know. I mean, you've got 10 seconds. So I took my tie and feigned that I was blowing my nose in it to communicate that a, a baby of the family would do anything for a cheap laugh. <laughs> well, Mrs. Uppington did not appreciate her husband's humor. Let's just put it that way. But she straightened me up lots of times. But I would tell you in reverse that a Saturday night dinner at our house starts on Thursday. And I'm the one that helps lighten her up with things because she takes things way too seriously. Uh. Okay. And uh, she needs me, to put it bluntly. And I think that's the message 
with the firstborn and the baby, that we really need each other because the firstborn can be too perfectionistic. And remember, perfection is slow suicide. Is it possible for uh, a child that's in the middle, I mean, Jean, last-born daughter, but she tends to have firstborn attributes of a bit of perfectionism. Is that typical? It can happen all the time. Once you get to large families, and again, today, a, a large family is a family of four, for Pete's sake. But you have those families that are eight, nine, ten kids. Within the family, there's at least three subfamilies in all probability. Just because of the age grouping. Because of the age grouping or the sex or some one of those attributes. And I think that's what made the birth order book sell well over a million copies, because everybody's got a birth order, and everybody understands that all the cubs came out of the den, same den, and yet they're very different. So let's also include some of those things. We talked about firstborns who marry and some... Uh, things they can do intentionally to communicate better. Uh, talk the other birth combos. How does uh, a last born and a middle child in a marriage, how do they communicate better? Well, last borns have to understand one thing, that they're not the only person in the union. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you, that's what us babies are good at. There's times I'm ashamed of how I think, ashamed of how I act, because it's so easy as a baby to think about only yourself. Center of the universe. We practice what we call natural tithing in the Lehman family, which means if we see a need in someone's life, we can help meet that need, we do that. That's really good therapy for me, just to give things to people without anything coming back. And I think babies in particular have a harder time being a good husband or a good wife because they tend to be, by their nature, too self-centered. And you have to be other people-centered. Middle children are great at other people. Centered, And that's why I mentioned earlier, middle children are tremendously loyal. They have friends outside of the family, which is key, outside of the family. No one ever asks a middle child, what do you think? So you always want to be making sure that you're tapping into the feelings and ideas and concerns that your middle child spouse has. On the other hand, as a middle child, you have to understand this spouse needs a few uh, fish thrown their way like a, like you throw a few fish to a seal. Orf, orf. <laughs> and us little babies need strokes. Kevin, that is good advice. Let me, let me ask you this. So many uh, young people are waiting to get married. Um, so we have more 20-something singles and 30-something singles. Uh, they'll hear this too. Thankfully, they're listening to Focus on the Family, and I'm grateful for that. How did they apply that? I would think a firstborn applying what they've heard in the in the broadcast uh, could take a real technical approach and begin uh, their search for a spouse, and that could be the topic of discussion. Where's your birth question. order? <laughs> Listen, that is such a good question. For all of you who are looking for Mr. or Mrs. Wright, listen to what this old man has to say. This one ought to get right to the heart of the matter. Does this person love God? If a person really loves God, if they really love God, they're going to do what the Bible tells them to do, and they're going to be a good husband and good wife. You're already on first base. Now, does this person you're marrying have a temper? Hmm. Uh-oh, yellow flag big time. Now, why would I pick on temper? Because temper equals control. And that's why I say to all you parents who are listening, you got kids who, when they lose, they throw temper tantrums and stuff. You better deal with that stuff right up straight right now, quickly. And so it really gets back to, uh, does he love God? Does she love God? Does this person have a temper? And what's the relationship like between this woman you're going to marry and her father? 
Well, he was abusive. Well, get ready for a long road, a tough road in that marriage, okay? But understand it. You have to understand it, yes. But it's like making a cake, Jim. In one of my books, I talk about daddy attention deficit disorder. And it's like making a cake. If you make it, I'm not much of a cake maker for sure, but if you make a cake and you leave out one major ingredient, I got news for you. The cake is going to fall. It's not going to be a good cake. Now, again, I'm stepping on a lot of toes here because there's a lot of women and men who have grown up in a home where the critical eye reigned and you were put down, you were discouraged, you weren't encouraged. You were just hammered. In, in fact, in many cases, you were v- at least verbally abused, but sometimes physically abused. Think of the kind of husband you need to have. You want to pray for something? Pray for a husband that's near superhuman because he's got to come around and just love you. He's a guy that needs not ever demand anything from you and just to accept you so that you have a chance at loving this husband that you've fallen in love with. And when you reach for imperfection and understand how broken you are, and I need this man, I need this woman in my life, that's the point where you have the intimate connection Mm -hmm. to realize that this person loves you, whether you have morning breath that could kill a cockroach at four and a half feet, or whether you have a habit that drives you up the wall. I mean, that's what's great about just being thoroughly married and thoroughly connected. But isn't it nice to know that God loves you despite all of your frailties that you notice a part of your life. That's what's cool about marriage, I think, that this person loves me at an intimate level, and I can connect. And And then there's not the performance stress, I think, on the kids. We're creating adults. You're not rearing kids. You're really rearing adults. And that's why you give responsibility to kids. That's why you don't let them run over you. But you're training that son or that daughter to be a good husband or a good wife. Well, and that's what's so wonderful. We have to, especially, again, I would say to the Christian community, we have to celebrate our differences and understand how to deal with the uh, the noise and the uh, the pain of being different. So Dr. Kevin Lehman, author of the book, The Birth Order Book, uh, we're grateful to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. It's always good to have Dr. Kevin Lehman here at Focus on the Family, and it's really interesting to think about how your birth order in your family of origin can impact you as you interact uh, as a couple. It's interesting, and I know with Jean and me, uh, she's number five out of six kids, while I'm number five out of five, but she's that last daughter. She's more like the middle child negotiator type, trying to be the peacemaker, Mm -hmm. And I think my spontaneity kind of drives her a little crazy. <laughs> I learned early in our marriage that I can't just say, hey, let's go do this or do that, because Gene needs time to plan it. And that's where the birth order lines up for Gene and me. Uh, you know, focus on the family cares about you and your marriage. We want your relationship with your spouse to be thriving along with your relationship with Christ. Yeah, we have so many resources to help you in that. Uh, that's one reason we created the Focus on the Family Marriage Assessment. It's an online tool. It's a quick little quiz you can take, uh, maybe five, six minutes long, and you'll get immediate results 
uh, to help you have some insights on how you're succeeding in your relationship and maybe an area or two that needs a little bit of work. I always love that. A little couple of areas to work yeah, on. <laughs> always some improvement. You know, another great place to start is to get a copy of the Birth Order book by Dr. Kevin Lehman. It's packed with solid insight and wisdom like you heard today. Donate and get your copy of the Birth Order book uh, when you're at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast or call 800, the letter A in the word family. 800-232-6459. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ. <music>